Welcome to this week's Thirsty episode. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, and I'm here with my associate and my co-host, Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. Yeah, and we are here in the pit of despair at Water of Life Lutheran Church in Racine and Caledonia. This week we're going to be looking at the theme for Reformation on a time for steadfast faith. You want to give us any information on Reformation, Nathan? Well, Reformation is the celebration of Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. Uh, has historically been reviewed as the start of uh, the Lutheran Reformation. Um, interesting, though, because Luther still hadn't really formed his theology at this point, wasn't really looking at this point to start a major movement, um, was looking just for a debate on some ideas he had been wrestling around with uh, for a few years at this point, and it's just kind of been universally accepted as the kind of flashpoint when everything started to take off. And there, I think of, uh, you said, posting in the 95 Theses, and this this afternoon, our teens are going to be coming to church, and they're going to be making pizzas, and it just happens to be that they're going to be making 95 pizzas, one pizza for each of the Theses. And then, uh, before uh, we started recording this, I had a hospital visit, and so on the way back from the hospital, I had listened to our Raised with Jesus uh, podcast that Nathan had given his devotion on the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I was thinking that as I was listening to your opening on the hymn devotion of how beautiful it is to see all the colors change the leaves, I think, oh, yeah, that would be nice, unless you're colorblind, like I am. Because we were, another pastor and I, we were driving to conference last week, and we got a younger pastor in the back seat, and he knew that the two of us were colorblind. He say, and he said, same thing, except he did it on purpose. Oh, the colors are so wonderful this time of the year. And I said, yeah, they are. They're the exact same color they are the rest of the year, just gray. Well, my son and I actually were discussing this last night because the children were playing Madden on the PlayStation and were talking about some of the interesting color combinations that they had made for the NFL football jerseys. And I was wondering... Well, what does a football game even look like to Pastor Zarling? Can he tell the difference between the different teams? No. Especially when they're doing the NFL Color Rush journey jerseys? I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the gospel lesson for this Sunday is Matthew chapter 10. Nathan, you want to read that? Yeah, from Matthew. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on guard against people. They will hand you over to councils. They will whip you in their synagogues. You will be brought into the presence of governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Whenever they hand you over, do not be worried about or how you will respond or what you will say because what you will say will be given to you in that hour. In fact, you will not be the one speaking, but the spirit of your father will be speaking through you. Brother will hand over his brother to death and father will do the same with his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all people because of my name, but whoever endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Amen, I tell you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So this gospel lesson, I believe, is chosen for the Reformation because of that theme of persecution. And... 
Jesus begins this section by saying, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You know, the idea there that uh, sheep have nothing to defend themselves. Uh, they can't uh, go on the offensive at all. They can't even defend themselves. They can kind of run away, but basically they need a shepherd to protect them from the wolves. Uh, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And there I, I point out that at our church, the Racine campus, we have a stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd. And if we get away from the good shepherd and wander on our own, that's when the devil as a roaring lion, that's when his demons and those who serve him as ravenous wolves, that's when they can get at us. But when we are close to him, kept safe in the mighty fortress, as the hymn for this Sunday sing is about, when we're close to him and we're in his arms as he is the good shepherd, uh, that we're little lambs, we're older sheep around his feet, he's close, we're close to him so that he can pull us close with his staff and he can use his rod to reach out and beat on those wolves and those lions. I think one of the other reasons this section is chosen for Reformation if I'm not mistaken, I believe um, when they presented the Augsburg Confession, a number of the Lutheran laymen used this verse specifically talking about how they were doing exactly what Jesus said. They were speaking before governors and kings the words given to them by the Spirit of the Father. Yeah, and there I was thinking of that too. Uh, you'll be brought into the presence of governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And as I was considering these verses along with the Daniel text we're going to look at next as Daniel gives a testimony of his faith and he's been doing it for uh, probably 60 years because he's 80 years old around the time of the Daniel and the lion's den story because Daniel one he's a teenager so what 60 years he's in the employ of the Babylonian government later on the Medo-Persian government and I know Jesus is saying here that we're going to be dragged as Christians at times before kings and courts and councils. But I talked in my Bible study this morning about this is maybe what we need to be doing as pastors and just people in the pews is to go and meet with our sheriff, chief of police, our alderman, our mayor, and so forth, our local representatives, so that we know them and they know us. You know, for here in Racine County, the the sheriff is probably going to be a little more politically aligned with me than the mayor is. But that's okay. Maybe I need to spend more time with the mayor then. And uh, in 2020, when different uh, mandates came down from our city council on COVID and so forth, I reached out to the aldermen and they wanted to hear from me. And I wish I would have known this better is to go and reach out to them ahead of time and build up that relationship so that when we as people or pastors or churches then get brought before kings and courts and councils or mayors or aldermen and so forth, they know us and we know them. So it's not antagonistic, at least not from our side. It might be from their side, but not from our side. Well, I think that ties in with what Jesus is saying, which is, you know, on its face, really strange advice coming from our Savior to be as shrewd as snakes um, going out into the world that, you know, for the sake of the gospel, we 
because we are sheep among wolves, we should be able to move in the sphere of the world um, in a way that helps promote the spread of the gospel using the tools that we have um, at our disposal, not doing things that violate God's word or are unethical or un or um, not moral, but still using the tools that are available that are legitimately there for us to use to be as shrewd as snakes. And there I think of shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves is I always talk about the high ground, like in episode three of Star Wars, of uh, one of the climactic scenes. You've got Anakin Skywalker down below on Mustafar, the volcan- volcano planet, and you've got Obi-Wan, uh, that he is above him, and he yells at Anakin, I have the high ground. And then Anakin tries jumping over him, and that's when Obi-Wan cuts off his arms. He ends, his, ends up landing in the lava, and his legs get burned off. And the idea, though, is we have the high ground that as Christians, that we are always going to be at peace, that we may resist, but we never revolt, we never rebel, so that when... Uh, we're innocent so that when others accuse us, they can just look at our words, they look at our actions, they look at our past because we've built up a relationship in our community with our governing authorities and so forth, and they realize anything that's coming down on us is not things that we brought down on us because we were in the wrong. It's because we were always, Lord willing, in the right with his gospel and his gospel of peace. Sorry, I got distracted in my own mind when you're talking about sword fights on high ground, and I'm picturing the duel between Indigo Montoya and Wesley, where Wesley jumps out of the tower and flips. Sorry. That's a good one. Uh, And then verse 19, whenever they hand you over, do not be worried about how you respond or what you say, because what you say will be given to you in that hour. In fact, you will not be the one speaking, but the Spirit of your Father will be speaking through you. I don't know, Nathan, do you ever have conversations in your head? All the time. All the time. That's why I asked you the question. <laughs> All the time. I do that too. Why do you think, you don't have to know why I do it, but why do you do it? Why do you have conversations in your head? Well, it depends. Um, part of it is I like to play stuff out. Um, it drives my wife nuts sometimes because I am a, I am a planner. I'm a details person, and so I'll often come up with, contingencies. Well, what do I say in this situation? What, well, what if this happens? And so I sometimes I play out all the different scenarios and then reality is never anywhere close to what those scenarios I have come up with. Um, but still, I like to plan ahead. I like to think ahead. Um, but it is interesting. I have had times where, and I'm sure you have had too, where you're in a situation with a prospect or a member and they say something, and you're like, how am I going to respond? And you just start talking. And somehow, despite yourself you manage to say the right thing yeah yeah i think of counseling sessions i've went into where i i just go in going lord give me the right words because i have no idea how to how to do this and then afterwards the couple go that was really good pastor and i i said well thank you what did i say uh but there are times and i told you this too going into a situation having a devotion ready for a hospital or maybe after someone has just died and having one thing planned out and then on the fly changing it to do something else because in talking with the people realizing, oh, what I had was good, but what the Holy Spirit ended up giving me was something better. 
And that's what Jesus is giving us here is that confidence that we do want to plan. You know, we want to have those Bible verses, those hymn verses, and that's why we do the hymn, hymn devotions, why we encourage our people to use the hymnals in their devotional life. Uh, this is why we have our Sunday school kids, our catechism kids, memorizing Bible verses. Not that they're going to memorize it exactly, and, or at least be able to recite it exactly, but it's in their mind, it's in their heart somewhere, so that when the time comes, they can at least refer to something and know, okay, uh, I have this word. And then to be able to say, okay, I don't know the exact words here, but you know who does? Let's go talk to my pastor. I like this verse too because it's an example where we can look throughout history and see concrete examples of where this promise of Christ has been fulfilled. I think of Peter before the Sanhedrin, Paul before Felix and Festus, Luther at the Diet of Worms, and then you know later the other Lutheran leaders at the at the Diet of Augsburg that they had the words to say that God was with them, and they were able to confess their faith. Yeah, and then the last part is kind of depressing. That brother will hand over his brother to death. The father would do the same to his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Uh, people are going to hate you. And why is that? Because the gospel is a gospel of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. The angels saying on uh, Christmas Eve, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. And yet... This gospel of peace does not bring peace in people's hearts. Uh, those that are unbelievers, they are going to be up against it because they're born sinful. They are, by nature, hostile to God. Therefore, they're going to be hostile toward God's people. That It says in Revelation 13 that the governments of this world that oppose Christianity will also wage war against God's saints, and that's us. And we shouldn't be upset by it. We shouldn't be depressed by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus tells us this is going to happen. And I wonder sometimes, Nathan, if we maybe we're not pulled before kings and courts and councils, that we're not persecuted that much because people don't hear us saying things boldly and getting them riled, getting their sinful natures riled up. And I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is we've we as a church have been rather sheltered in America. Um, I don't remember who said it, and so I don't want to say a name and then be be wrong. Um, but it was, I think, talking about like the imprecatory Psalms. Um, but it was it was a, a reference and talking about persecution too. That it's hard to pray Psalms like the imprecatory Psalms when you're sitting in padded pews. That we really haven't faced the kind of persecution that most of the rest of the Christian church throughout history has had to endure. And so I think that makes it a little different. And I think we are seeing kind of a phase shift in our culture where we are going to be called before kings, that we are going to face increased persecution. Something else that struck me as interesting with this section is I would say that the confessional Lutheran church is kind of one of the only church bodies that has this mindset that we will be hated by the world. You think of so many others think that the Christian church ultimately is going to win. And so please let me explain what I'm saying. We are going to win ultimately when Jesus comes again, but so many other church bodies think that there's going to be a Christian 
nation or utopia or that Christianity is going to be the dominant religion in the world. That's not what Jesus says. The Christian church is always going to be a small remnant, that many are called but few are chosen, that we are going to face hatred and persecution right up until the time when Jesus comes again. Yeah, and you see that in so many churches, so many preachers, that very popular preachers, and now they are accepting the worldview of paganism, of different sexual sects and so forth. And they are then watering down the truth of the gospel. They're trying to win the people of the world by uh, watering down God's word and by becoming the world. And what you're saying, Nathan, is, uh, you know, what's, what Jesus says here is, yeah, we, Lord willing, in the Wisconsin Synod, we're going to be hated by the world because we're standing up for what God's word says uh, clearly. And, you know, I remember years ago, a young lady saying to me, because I was trying to encourage her to take the classes, she had her daughter in her school, and take classes to become a member, and she said, well, I just don't like how the Wisconsin Synod views the roles of men and women. You know, I think women should be able to be pastors and leaders and so forth. And I said to her, well, but that's what Scripture says. And she said, well, doesn't Scripture change with the times? I said, no, absolutely not. I said, it's the one constant that you have, that your daughter has, that all of us have, because everything in this world is changing. And that's what you see so often in the popular, what I call box churches, uh, that are, are inviting everyone in the community in, which is awesome, but they're becoming like the community. We are in the church are inviting the community in, not so that we, be, as the church, become like them, but Lord willing, that they become like us, meaning through the sacrament of water in baptism, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, through God's word to change their hearts, to make them from sinners into saints instead of what so often in the world they're making the saints and the Christian church become more like the sinners. And I think you see that playing out demographic-wise, too, where people are like, well, why would I be a member at a church if it's no different than the rest of the world? Why would I give up time every week to go to this place when I'm not getting anything different than I am everywhere else in my life, which is something that I think is a real strength of the Lutheran Church and something that we should celebrate and use as an outreach, that we are different, that we're taking a stand on the truth of God's Word, that we're saying we're different than the world. We have the truth, and we're not afraid to proclaim that message. Yeah, and one of those things I was just talking to Nathan before we started recording is I've been kind of busy today, a, a good busy, in that instead of sitting down at my computer, I taught a Bible study, then we have a private baptism, then going to the hospital, and but with that baptism, here's a, it was a private baptism. It was just mom and dad and the the baby, and then grandma and uncle, and then a sister and a friend, and that was it. But from that baptism, the mom of the baby said, "Pastor, do you do weddings? Because they're not married, you know." And then you know, looking forward to the wedding, and then they want want to become members, and then. The, the sister, so it would be the aunt of the little baby, 
And she said, I haven't been in church in over 20 years, too, because I'd never seen her, and I've been here 19 years. And she put her name and phone number in my phone as well and asked me to invite her and her husband. But those things happen because we are different. So that I didn't have to bring up about living together or talking about marriage. The, the mom knew because that had been instilled in her from her mom and grandmother and being in our Sunday school 13 plus years ago. But that word works. And as we stand up for the truth, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit works through that word and they come around, not because we're changing, but the Holy Spirit is changing them. Anything else you want to bring up on this? No, I think that's pretty much pretty much it. Okay, then let's talk about the Old Testament lesson. So this is kind of new for the, the, for the lectionary or the pericope from Daniel chapter 6. So all of Daniel 6 is the events of Daniel and the lion's den. But these are just the selected verses beginning with verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. It had windows on its upper story that opened toward Jerusalem. Three times each day he would get on his knees and pray and offer praise before his God. He continued to do that, just as he had been doing before this. Then these men came as a group and found Daniel praying and seeking favor from his God. They then went and asked the king about the decree. Your majesty, did you not sign a decree that anyone who prays to any god or person for 30 days except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the den of lions? The king answered, indeed I did. The order is established as a law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Then we jump to verse 16. Then the king gave the order, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the pit. The king sealed it with his signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing could be changed with regard to Daniel's situation. Then the king went to his palace. He spent the night without food and no entertainment was brought before him, but he could not sleep. At dawn, the king arose as soon as it was light and hurried to the lion's den. As he came near the pit, he cried out in a fearful voice. The king said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve continually, able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, Your majesty, may you live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because he found me innocent in his presence. Also before you, your majesty, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very glad and said that Daniel should be brought up from the pit. So Daniel was brought up from the pit, and he was unharmed because he trusted in his God. So Nathan, you want to give some background on this text? Well, it's also been interesting. I've noticed this is the third week that we've had a reading from Daniel. Um, it's it's just interesting. I, I don't believe that was really part of the, the old lectionary, and it's interesting that we're getting some more stories from Daniel. Um, but some of the background, Daniel had been serving the Babylonian Empire. Now he was serving the Empire of the Medes and Persians. Um, we figure at this point, Daniel's probably at least 80 years old um, and has been serving these various governments since he was a teenager. And so. Yeah, there, I was thinking this too with the 80 years old that uh, he must have been a pretty sharp. 80 years old, he's not maybe like some of our politicians in, in the White House or who's running for the White House or who's in Congress and so forth. Some of them are, because he's just not that sharp. 
at 80. Um, and I, I imagine Daniel was sharp because these men are trying to find something wrong with him. You know, for 60 years, they can't find anything wrong with him. And still at, at 80, he is probably very sharp and, and he's not willing to compromise his faith. No, and it was interesting too. He doesn't compromise his faith. And you would think after being a major government official for that long, he would have favors that he'd be able to call in too to make this go away. But he doesn't do that. Um, he he confesses his faith. We see him resisting the dragon's beast. I think somebody should maybe write a, a book maybe. about that. Um, but it, it's interesting too that, you know, in this, Daniel could have gone, locked himself in his bedroom and prayed and nobody would have known. Um, he would not have been... He would have not have been denying God. He just would have been doing it privately. But it seems that he's still publicly, and not in like a crass way or a boastful way, he just refuses to change what had been his practice, knowing that I really like how the we have been joking about this, the summary from the, the Wells worship material says it potentially meant death by lion. <laughs> potentially. <laughs> Yeah, and and these lions, they're hungry. Okay, it's not like they're they're feeding them a whole lot of food. They're they're purposely keeping them just, uh, you know, at the edge of malnourishment, so that when they throw them in, and this is a part that we don't read in our churches or in Sunday school lessons. It's the end of the story, right? The end of the story, like Paul Harvey would say, is that uh, those officials that really tricked King Darius. Now they're thrown to the lion's den. But it's not just them. It's their wives. It's their children because that was the way of the ancient world. The whole whole family paid for the sin of the fathers. And and it's interesting too. So you and I, you turned me on to the podcast uh, and I just lost the name of that podcast about... Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Yeah, Hardcore History. He He's talking about King uh, Darius now that where I'm listening to it and then Cyrus before him and he talks about how the Medes and Persians were different than the Assyrians which were just brutal and the Babylonians they followed in their path but the Medos the Medes and Persians the Medo-Persian Empire they had a more gentler approach you know like he describes if they wanted to if the Assyrians or Babylonians wanted the ships of the Phoenicians who were a de- who were a sailing culture? They would just kill the Phoenicians and then take the boats. He says, but Cyrus and Darius, the Medo-Persian Empire, they would go have a deal with the Phoenicians and say, "You're free, you're under our empire, but when we need your ships, you're going to serve us, and we're going to use your ships." And that that worked fine. And except here, here. Darius uses that brutality that the cultures of that time are known for to show other officials, do not mess with me. This is an instance, too, where if you're just looking at the Bible as a literary form, I really love, you know, when you do run across these things of just pure irony, where you have, you know, the officials who wanted Daniel to be fed to the lions, they themselves get fed to the same lions. You have that in Esther, where Haman gets... Haman gets hung on his own um, his own thing that he had built. Um, that you just see irony. You see God's hand working there. And yeah, not karma. Not karma. Yeah, divine irony is a good way to yes. put it. 
Yeah, and this is what I was talking about before with the gospel lesson of being brought before kings and courts and councils. Notice there's no animosity from King Darius. Daniel has been working with Darius, and, da and Darius trusts him. It sounds like Darius does not have a good night's sleep. He is concerned. He's praying to his gods that the true God, the Hebrew God, would save Daniel. And it sounds like Daniel has a good night's sleep. Even though it's in the lion's den, he's nice and safe. Maybe even using one of the bellies of the lion as a pillow. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but just that imagery is there in my head of laying down comfortably, as comfortably as you can be in a pit filled with lions, whereas King Darius is not comfortable. And he runs to, to check on uh, Daniel as soon as possible. And notice what he says. Did your God whom you serve continually, you know, he didn't, he didn't compromise his faith, that you serve continually. Did, you keep, did he keep you safe from the lions? And it has to be a question knowing from his viewpoint, there's no way that Daniel's safe. And yet he calls out, yeah, your majesty, may you live forever. He's respectful to the guy who that just threw him in the lion's pit ready to kill him, uh, potentially. This again, I'm getting distracted because this, you every once in a while throw in VeggieTales references. This is one of my favorite lines is when, I think it's Larry is the one who plays Daniel and gets thrown to the lions. And when he comes out, he goes, bye guys, thanks for the pizza. <laughs> I did not know that one. And, and I don't remember who, I think it's the giant pickle is playing, is playing the king. Yeah. And they're all like, pizza? How did you guys get pizza? And it's just one of those like, oh, that's funny. Daniel was just hanging out with the lions having, having a sleepover. I'll have to watch that one again. Yeah. I did not know that one. Uh, I do. I do know. You know, Rack Shack and Benny with the uh, the chocolate bunny. Yep. The bunny. The bunny. Yeah. Uh, and here I think of to an application is we should not be afraid of being dragged before the kings or any other one, any other governing authority. That God will give us the words to say, and if he and he he might spare us. And we're rescued. Or what we might think is the worst thing, and we're, we die at the, in the mouths of lions, well, we, we really escape, and we're taken to heaven. But we always have, uh, again, an application, a roaring lion of the devil who is going to come at us. He's going to accuse us of our sins. He's going to whisper in our ears all kinds of lies. He's going to send his ravenous wolves of demons and people that are pagan and unbelievers and working for the principalities and authorities of this world, that they're going to come at us. And yet we have Jesus Christ, who is described as the angel of the Lord, that he has come and he has shut the mouth of that roaring lion. He has stepped down as the king and savior on the cross and crushed and shut the whispering, lying uh, serpent of the devil. He sends his angel, his archangel Michael and the rest of the angels to defeat the demonic wolves and chase them away. I always think of, and I can't think of one in particular right now, but I, I, I think of some of the accounts of, from the church fathers of the earlier mar martyrs and just how defiant they were in the face of death, you know, facing this persecution where the Romans were going were gonna to kill them and they you know, there's stories of them going to their death singing psalms. Um, is it 
now oh, no, I can't remember which one. If it's Ignatius or Polycarp, it's one of them. And I could be completely. Don't worry, none of us know the difference. It could be completely wrong in that, but like, talks about like some of the you know we don't know if it's happened or not, but some of the miracles like that they felt no heat from the fire, they died peacefully. That the one as he died, his body gave off the aroma of fresh baked bread. Like these things, like God used them as a witness, and people saw that, were moved by it. That these people facing death go to that death calmly because they know that something far better is waiting for them. Yeah. One of the pastors on the Preacher's Podcast, you can see, read, I'm sorry, you can listen to that podcast because it's hard to read a podcast. You can listen to that podcast on the Raised with Jesus podcast too. And one of the pastors had mentioned this, and I never heard of this before, so I wanted to bring it up. He talked about how King Darius felt he did everything to save Daniel, except he didn't. He said, he, he, one thing he didn't do is he didn't say, you know what? Daniel, you sit on the throne. I'll jump in the lion's den and then make that an application. That's what the real king, Jesus, did. Is he, made, he jumped into the lion's den. He went to the cross for us to spare us. Always reading this account, I've always been curious how day-to-day, practically speaking, this law of no law can be revoked. How in the world did that ever work out because that seemed like that could be a very efficient form of inefficient form of government very quickly yeah well you're you're well i was gonna say you're new to being in the church but you've been in the church for a long time in leadership you understand how often oh we have to do this because of the constitution bylaws oh my goodness i mean it's a good thing to have a constitution and bylaws because you like those kind of things but they can also be very binding and because one of the things that drives me crazy Thankfully, we don't have that in the new constitution with water of life. But there's so many churches that it's in their constitution and bylaws. They have to have a quarterly meeting. And I talked to other pastors, and they're, I got to go. We have, a, we have a quarterly meeting. I said, what are you talking about? I don't know, but we have a quarterly meeting. Whether they need one or not, they're going to have one. And you know, I just bring that up as an example of sometimes having to do it by the book It'd be better if we just throw the book away. As someone who was a council secretary for 10 years and lived with the constant frustration of going, guys, we, we passed a motion on this a year ago, and gradually coming to the understanding, nobody reads anything. <laughs> nobody follows anything. It it very often is like the time of the judges, yes. where each one does their own thing, and those of us who are tasked with trying to keep things running in order often, well, I mean, I would say I'd pull my hair out, but I don't have any left. <laughs> but this is why God gave you to me and to this church, so that we have someone to keep uh, good reins on the pastor and the leaders here. They just kind of do things by the, by the way of the judges. I really don't like how people keep telling me this is my responsibility. <laughs> Everyone keeps saying this, like, well, you're responsible for keeping them all in line. I'm like, I, yeah, especially, I, especially the older pastor, yeah. Uh, let's get into the epistle lesson, and you're preaching on this, correct? I am preaching so on this. he's got all of the good stuff to share with you guys, so I'll read it. Romans three nineteen and 28. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says is addressed to those who are under the law, so that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be subject to God's judgment. For this reason, no one will be declared righteous by his sight, by works of the law, for through the law we become aware of sin. But now, completely apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been made known. 
The law and the prophets testify to it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and over all who believe. In fact, there is no difference because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as the atonement seat through faith in his blood. God did did this to demonstrate his justice since in his divine restraint he had left the sins that were committed earlier unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that he would be both just and the one who justifies the person who has faith in Jesus. What happens to boasting then? It has been eliminated. By what principle? By the principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith without the works of the law. So the theme that I ended up with for my sermon is, how did I phrase it? Things stay the same, things change. Or maybe that's, oh, I have it right here. I forgot. I put it in the bulletin. Things change, things stay the same. Um, And kind of what we're talking about this Sunday, not only are we celebrating Reformation, we're also celebrating the three-year anniversary of the two congregations voting to merge into Water of Life. And so I'm kind of playing with the idea that, well, things change. The church grows, but there's some things that don't change. They stay they stay the same. This idea of works righteousness that Paul is addressing in his letter to Romans, that then Luther had to address in the Middle Ages, and that we still struggle with as Christians. And so we're hoping that with this Unity Sunday, God willing, God will send us some of our members, some visitors maybe, but maybe some members who haven't been in church for a while. And so I just tried to do a very straightforward law, gospel, you know, classical Lutheran sermon talking about... The so the opposite of my sermons then. <laughs> um, and so talking about, you know, the, the danger of works righteousness as the law here, and then broadening it out a little bit with that all have sinned, um, but then really focusing heavy on the gospel. Um, and what I really like, I mean, this is such a packed section of Romans. I remember I just went through this um, a couple months ago with um, retired professor Paul Wendland. And I think we spent we spent almost a week, for sure, three or four class periods just on this section of verses because there's so much. And one of the things I really picked out, if you're talking about gospel, this is a chance to really focus on three different pictures that Paul uses for our salvation. Um, in verse 24 and 25, you have Paul saying, We are justified freely by his grace. That's the picture of the courtroom uh, that many of us are familiar with, that we are justified. We have been declared not guilty. And then Paul talks about the redemption, the idea that we were born in the slave market, slaves to sin, and that Jesus bought us back. And then also the picture Paul uses there about the atonement cover, that Jesus was the sacrifice, Um, that since God is just, Sins have to be paid for, and they have to be paid for with blood. And the only blood that can make that payment is the blood of God, that Jesus had to die for the sins of the world because only he could do it. Um, And just a chance to give people those three different views of salvation and what that means for us. Yeah, and they're just touching on a couple of verses. Uh, Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law. There... I think of this morning after our Bible study, 
we, Nathan, you and I, and a couple of other members uh, changed the paintings at a Racine campus. So what we have is five sets of paintings that change throughout the church year. And the ones we just put up were the ones that were made for the season of end times. We don't have that season in our new blue Christian worship hymnal, but we still celebrate the season of end times at, at Water of Life. And the, the one painting is Jesus on his throne with his feet on a globe. So all things are under his feet. But on his right is an angel with a scroll. So it's the book of life where only their names are written. And we have two saints in their white robes and golden crowns. But on his left is a demon that is leading two people to hell. But I'm thinking of with this verse, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by works of the law. That those two people on Jesus left, and it's a visible representation in that painting of Matthew 25, the goats on the right, I mean the, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, that those on the left want to be justified, declared innocent by their own doing. And so they try it, it doesn't work. And so they are then led by the demon to hell because that's where their works take them. Whereas the saints on Jesus' right, all of their imperfect right works have been washed away by the blood of Christ so that none of their works are written down, only their names. It's the doctrine of works righteousness always leads to one of two places. You either always end up in complete and total despair, which is what Luther struggled with. Luther did everything within the medieval Catholic system to be justified according to what that system taught. He did it all. And yet he still had a tortured conscience because he realized that nothing he did could pay for one of his sins, let alone all of them. Or you end up in the other camp, you know, that Jesus rails against so often the Pharisees who who thought mistakenly, well, man, I've done it. Like, if there's anyone who gets who deserves to get into heaven, it's me. And it's interesting reading Paul. You see Paul Paul admits almost that he had that mindset at one point. And he talks about if anyone should be able to boast about their works, it's me. And yet what did Paul regard himself? He regarded himself as the chief of sinners because he realized his works counted for absolutely nothing. Um, and I think it's one of those things you can do a harsh preaching of the law by, you know, asking your people, how well have you lived your Christian life this week? And they're going to sit. And what are we going to do automatically? We're going to start thinking about all the ways that we failed. But then you can follow that up with saying, well, I'll tell you how you lived your Christian life this week. You lived it perfectly because Christ lived it for you. And if we want to live on our own, with that thought in mind, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're going to try to get there by our works, we're always going to fall short. And then we are declared innocent, justified. How are we do, uh, declared innocent? It's freely. It's not, uh, it's not free. Uh, it's free to us, but it wasn't free to Jesus. It cost him his blood and life. And it's by his grace, his undeserved love, through the redemption, the buying back uh, of us from, uh, from the devil. And in the baptism that we had today, uh, I talked about how the old 
Lutheran rite of baptism from Luther was like an exorcism. And it had some weird stuff in there, right? Like blowing in the eyes uh, for the pastor to spit on his finger and put it on the uh, on the tongue and the ears and saying, Ephatha, be open like Jesus did with the mute deaf man. Uh, oh, there was salt. Yeah, putting salt on the mouth or on the tongue. Yeah. There, yeah, so it was some weird things. But... The, the idea, and I explain it to the parents, is uh, the idea with the exorcism was we belong to the devil in our birth. That this little baby that was born, Noah, who was baptized, that he was born a sinner, belonging to the devil. Uh, that by his sinful nature, from his conception, he is an enemy of, of God. He is hostile to God, his works and his will and his ways. And yet, through baptism, God rips that devil, you can say like an exorcism, rips him out of the devil's arms and places that now baptized and wet child of God into Jesus the Good Shepherd's arms. Uh, and I also explained to the parents that one of the reasons that Luther then got rid of the exorcism part in the baptismal prayer, their baptismal rite was that so many people were focusing on the salt, the blowing, all those kind of things, and even the, the candles and things like that, and not focusing as much on what's really important in the baptism, which is the water and the word. But it is that redemption in Christ Jesus uh, whom God publicly displayed as the atonement seat. And there you think of the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant. You had the two cherubim, the, the wings of the angels that uh, touched, and then that was the atonement seat right below there. That was the imagery of God in cloud form would be sitting there, and then the high priest would take the blood of the sacrificial animal and then sprinkling it once a year on the great day of atonement when he was the only time he could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood of the goat onto the atonement seat. There, even though God is in cloud form, there I always tell people, imagine there's eyes in that cloud. God's eyes are covered with blood so he cannot see our sin. And that's pointing ahead to Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed to cover over his Father's eyes. So like you said, Nathan, that God does not see our sin. He sees us now as holy and saintly because he only sees Christ. I had a really fight from getting distracted in my sermon because it was already longer than I wanted it to be. Um, but but, but I, I told you this too just the other few minutes ago that one of our young people had told me that he liked you better than me already because your sermons were shorter. So then I knew that he was teasing me because I, yeah. there's no way that no, that's true. No, that, that's not true. <laughs> um, but I went and I was reading, and I think it's Leviticus 17 is where the Great Day of Atonement is. 16. 16. Um, and we had done this a couple years ago at seminary. When we went through that section. I had gone through in my Bible and just underlined every time it says atone or atonement. Um, and the ritual that was involved and the holiness. And I believe from one of my notes I had scribbled in the margin, this is the only rite where the priest was also required to bathe not only before he went into the Holy of Holies, 
but also after he came out. No other ritual in the Old mm. Testament required the priest to bathe afterwards. And the thinking is that, this is going to sound weird, but that the priest was actually contaminated with the holiness of God. Oh, he, really? That he was doing something so holy and profound that in order to go back to the people, he needed to bathe because sin cannot exist in the presence of God and that he was actually carrying part of that holiness and so he needed to wash to purify to pure it, it sounds weird but yeah. to purify himself of that he had to purify himself from purity he had to purify himself from purity but you think about it it in in a way it makes sense because the holiness of God is so i'm really well, struggling it's, it's absolute it's absolute so sin cannot exist in that presence um yeah, that'd be it'd be a fun Bible study to go through the Great Day of Atonement. I was really fighting not to just take up five pages in my sermon and talk about it, but um, I referenced it and felt like, man, I just want to dive into this because it, it's just it's such an amazing picture um, of God's love, and you see that the care um, that He provides a way for His people to make atonement for their sin. But then what also is crazy? You think about all of those sacrifices, all the animals, all the blood that was shed. And how really that that didn't do anything. No, All of it was a shadow pointing forward to Christ, and it was only Christ's blood that could make atonement for the sins of the world. Yeah, it did not eliminate the sin. It emphasized the sin. And that's what Paul seems to be talking about. I think it's, yeah, where is that? In verse 25, where it talks about God and his divine restraint, he had left the sins that were committed earlier unpunished. It, Paul seems to be talking about that old, in the Old Testament, that sins sins had to be forgiven in Christ, and God didn't punish those sins. It gets confusing, and the Greek is rather complicated here, but that seems to be what Paul's talking about, that God didn't punish sins because they were going to be punished in Christ. Yeah. And then he wraps it up with verse 28, for we conclude that a person is justified by faith without the works of the law, or what Luther would have written, sola fide, in his Bible in Latin, faith alone. Uh, and, and that's the key. And that's what really separates us as Lutheran Christians from every other Christian church body. That, you know, I tell people who are you know, maybe like Baptist, Methodist, Assembly of God, you know, anything that's not Lutheran or Catholic, you know, they'll say, oh, you Lutherans, you're like the Catholics. And they mean because our worship practices, our worship services are very similar. And I, I always tell them, Really? I always heard that you were close to the Catholics. Now, what? And they're almost offended by that statement. And I explained to them is that Catholics will believe that you are saved by faith plus your works. Jesus Christ paid for their sins, but they also believe that you have to pay for your sins here on earth with indulgences and masses and Our Fathers, and Hail Marys, and so forth. Uh, and then you, eventually you have to pay it off in purgatory as well. And so it's faith plus works. And then I explain to all, all those that are non-denominational and so forth, or other denominations than Lutheran and Catholic, and saying, but you believe that you're saved by your works plus your faith, that it's your works of I accepted God, I made my decision, and so forth. I said the believer's prayer and to make yourself a Christian. So you and the Catholics are the same as faith plus works. 
or works plus faith. Whereas Lutherans, it's faith alone. Christ did it all. We do nothing. And then, of course, the classic charge that's been leveled against us is that, well, you're saying that good works don't matter. And we're saying, of course not. The Bible is very clear that good works do matter. What we're saying is we have been freed from the requirements of the law. We have been freed from the requirement to do good works for salvation. Christ has done that. And what that does then is that frees us completely to do good works of love and service to our neighbor, where so many other church bodies, like the Catholics, are looking for, you need to do these specific good works, rosaries, saying our fathers, going on a pilgrimage, to do to earn favor with God. We say, no, a far greater good work is if you're a mother going home and tucking your children in at bed, or if you're working at a job, you showing up for work on Monday morning and doing your job faithfully, that is a good work. That has far more value in God's eyes than going on a pilgrimage or praying to a relic. God wants you to serve your neighbor in love. That's where we have been freed. And you think about the freedom. We have so many opportunities to do good works that God has blessed us with um, in our everyday lives. Yeah, and there to talk to people about uh, with good works, it's not that you have to, it's you get to. You're not doing good works to make God love you. You're not doing good works so that you get into heaven. It's because you're doing good works because God already loves you. You're doing good works because you're going to heaven. Well, and that's kind of going back to the sheep and the goats picture that we, we talked about a little bit ago. You know, the sheep in that story, when Jesus is like, well, you fed me, you clothed me. And the sheep are going, Lord, when did we do that? I mean, I know I did that to help my neighbor. And Jesus is saying, no, you know, he talks, whatever you do for one of the least of these, you do for me. But as Christians, we, we don't even think about doing good works. It's simply what we, we do. We are God's people, so we live as God's people. And, and here's where I then talk to Catholics, and I remind them that in my, in my estimation, that ex-Catholics make the best Lutherans. And, and I, I come from saying that with a little bit of experience, because I think at at least a quarter, maybe even a third of our members here at our church are ex-Catholics. A lot of my family, like my mom, uh, is an ex-Catholic. And what I mean by ex-Catholics make good Lutherans is because they were brought up from little on of having to be saved by works. And then just so much guilt piled upon guilt and yet now, through Christ, that guilt is taken away. They now know that they, that heavy load of works is gone. They don't have to do it because Jesus Christ did it for them. And so now they're gracious, and, and they are looking forward to coming to church. They're looking forward to serving God. They're looking forward to doing these good works, not because they have to, but because they get to. And that's where it's just been so unfortunate. And you see the cunning of the devil on such display and the way he wormed his way into the Christian church and managed to pollute and undermine the message of the gospel and replace it with works righteousness um, and how he has shipwrecked the faith of so many while claiming to be the Christian church um, and taking portions of God's word and using God's word to attack the message of the gospel. Yeah, and this ramping it up here, the theme for this Sunday is a time for steadfast faith. And understanding that 
uh, how these fit together, these three scripture readings, because the Romans is very different than the gospel and, and the Old Testament. They fit together very well. But the epistle lesson is that really that last verse we've been spending some time talking about is we're saved, we're justified by faith alone. But it's that faith that's then put into works, which is Daniel, which is going before kings and courts and councils and giving your testimony. So uh, that's how they all fit together. It's the justified by faith and now displaying that faith. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, have a happy and blessed Reformation celebration. Uh, this is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from the Pit of Despair at Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.